0: If you're looking for more great content from the medical school headquarters, check out mededmedia.com. That's M E D E D media.com. This is the pre med year session number 175. Hello and welcome to the pre med years, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. Now, Welcome back to the pre-med years, if this is not your first time with us. If this is your first time, thank you for taking the time to put me in your earbuds and stick me in your ears and listen to me for the next 30 minutes or so, but not just me, I have a special co-host with me today, somebody who hasn't been on for a long time, welcome back, Dr. Allison Gray. Thank you. How are you doing?
1: I'm great, how are you?
0: I'm outstanding. It's been a long time. It has. Where have you been?
1: (laughs) Uh, Upstairs. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I've been here, I've been busy, and you've had lots of interesting guests on.
0: Uh, I think the listeners were starting to get worried that you just didn't care anymore.
1: Oh, that's shucks. (laughs) I
0: get so many emails that say, we want to hear from Allison.
1: I think that that's false, but uh, I maybe you get one or two. (gasps) No, but I'm flattered and it's good to be back.
0: Well, it's good to have you here. And we have an interesting topic today, an interesting discussion about things that we wished we would have learned in medical school things about being a physician, things about taking care of patients that at least our medical school didn't cover. And as we were doing some research, it looks like most medical schools don't cover. And I think you would agree with me that there's just so much to teach medical-wise that some of these that we're gonna cover just maybe just there's not enough time in the day and in four years to cover everything.
1: Yeah, and I think some of these are not taught because they can't be taught. They have to be learned through experience.
0: Interesting. Interesting. Well, I'm excited to dig in. Why don't we start with the first one, which is one that I came up with and I think is very important and something you hear a lot of complaints about. And that's the lack of teaching about nutrition and informing physicians or future physicians at this point, how nutrition plays a role in health and in healthcare. And I think it's a huge travesty and a, a huge uh, i i don't i don't even know the right word i, I think it's i think it's failure just a missing? huge failure that we don't teach about nutrition in school i mean y- you talk about the number one killers these days it's it's cardiovascular disease it's heart disease, and most of that is tied to diet and, and obviously lifestyle exercise but diet's a huge part of that and the fact that we're not Learning that, we just learn the, the pharmacology behind it all and how to push pills at people instead of having those discussions. What do you think about that?
1: Yeah, I agree, and I think uh what happens on the uh, on the other side of things is you are in the office and you have people coming in asking you about what is the role of diet in this disease or that disease and what what can I be doing with my diet to better my health and uh you may have very little knowledge and really have to learn as you go. Uh so that's unfortunate.
0: What if I play devil's advocate and say, "Well, they have nutritionists and dietitians and, and those types of people that are part of a healthcare team and, and that's their job to know the diet part.
1: Well, I would disagree because I think it's it is a team, but you have to at least have some knowledge. And if your knowledge is, well, go look at the food pyramid, then I think you're you're probably doing your patients a disservice. And I've had to do a lot of my own learning and uh I think a lot of patients come to my office asking about, well, you know, what can I do for my brain health and what can I, what kind of diet should I be on? And, um, you know, for example, like in epilepsy, there are certain, there's a particular diet, the ketogenic diet that can be helpful. But beyond that, I mean, there's really little in neurology about in terms of training about what diets are are better for preventing Alzheimer's and what diets. And part of it too is that we just don't know. So I think a lot of it also comes from just a lack of knowledge, um, about, healthy eating and and the other thing too ryan and we're going through this in our lives right now too is we're experimenting with different ways of eating we're we're trying the vegan thing now because we watched a documentary and learned about the dangers of animal protein and i think that's just a reflection of the sort of the mass debate nowadays about what is the right way you should be eating should you be eating vegan should you be eating gluten-free should you be
0: you know what you know what i saw recently somebody there's there's a blood type diet.
1: Oh, yeah, I've heard about that. Yes, yeah, I'm I, surprised you haven't heard about that till now. Yeah, I heard about that a few years back and someone would tell me that, or someone told me that they were eating um, the blood type B diet. And there was a celebrity, maybe it was Gwyneth Paltrow, somebody of who was- Of course, it um, was a celebrity. Well, it might've been. Who was- The uh,
0: anti-vaxxers in the blood type diets, all the celebrities. Oh,
1: well, anyhow, um, I think the anti-vaxxers is a much bigger problem <laughs> than a blood type diet. But, um, but yeah, so there are all these diets out there and some of them are crazy and terrible for you. And some of them are probably really good for you but nobody really knows what you should be eating there's no double Um,
0: blind placebo studies out there
1: correct and just like a lot of things yes um we don't have great data and so i think that's where you know you take a, a, a a mainstream western medicine based medical school and you you know what what should they be teaching um a lot of people even take issue with the food pyramid and now i know it's not really a pyramid anymore they changed it um anyway i think the 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 punchline is there's a lot that we don't know, but if you decide to just be uninformed and not know anything and just say, oh, well, it's the nutritionist's job, then I think you're really doing yourself and your patients a disservice.
0: I agree. All right.
1: Oh, and the other big thing is you have to have B12. That's good for your brain. So
0: (laughs) B12 is very important. And your nerves. And it comes from animal protein. Yeah, but
1: it also comes in bottles that say B12 on them. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Anyhow.
0: All right. So that's, I think that's the first big thing that is missing from medical education. And I think it's a a very well-known and very uh, hotly debated uh, subject that's missing. Yes. All right. Let's talk about the second one.
1: Well, I don't know what you changed the list on me. So what's number two? Ah, doctoring. Okay. Um, well, so here's the thing. Um, I, I, When I was thinking about this topic, this is what came to my mind first. And I know we've talked about this before, maybe not on the podcast, but we've talked about this together, that it, it, medical school trains you in what you need to know to be a physician. But I don't think that medical school really trains you to be a doctor. I think that that is what your residency does.
0: Explain that a little bit more.
1: So in... If you go to a traditional medical school, the first two years you're in the classroom and you're learning everything you need to know about the body and about human disease and illness. And then in your second two years, your third and fourth years, you're on the wards and you're seeing patients. I think in at least my experience, um, I... Certainly on the wards, you learn how to take care of patients. You learn how to um, create an assessment and a plan and how, you know, how are you going to diagnose whatever condition they're coming in with and, and create a differential diagnosis and how are you going to treat that patient and how are you going to work on a team and, and see a bunch of patients during the day and try to coordinate their care. But I think that when you actually go in to to the hospital on your first day as an intern, everything is just different. It's just different. And I don't think you can really – I don't think you can really articulate necessarily how, but it's just different. And maybe it's the responsibility that you have because it's now, you're now a physician and you're now responsible for somebody and their life. Um, but it's a very different experience than when you're on the wards as a medical student. And I, I think that med, stools, med schools do the best that they can in preparing. Med stool, huh? <laughs> <Shush>. <laughs> We're all allowed to have a paraphasic error every now and then. Um, anyhow, uh, See now, I completely lost my train of thought. What was I saying? Um, oh, med schools. Yes, med schools try to do as best a job they can at preparing you to walk in the you know and be a physician and and do what you need to do to take care of patients in the hospital and in the clinic. But I don't think that just from my own personal experience, and you can share yours. I don't feel that that when I graduated med school, I was ready to be a doctor, and that's why we have residency. That's why we have internship and residency training, and that I think is where you really learn. To um, to really become a physician, and I think it's it was just interesting to me because I I remember so vividly how how terrified I was right before um, a starting internship, and it, and it was exactly for that reason I didn't I didn't feel ready, and I don't think you can until you really start.
0: So, so here's my question: We're talking about stuff we wish we would have learned in medical school. So, how does a medical school teach you that? Or you, you just said you really can't?
1: Well, yes and no. I think that that a med school can do the best job that they can in that. Uh, I and I think I've seen just you know when I was a resident and, and when I was a med student, when I was a resident, when I how ha- you know since I've been in attending, probably different schools have different ways of of getting people ready. Um, And people are therefore more or less ready to sort of do that. I I think what I'm getting at, I I guess, is that um, there are sub-internships or away electives, things that um, schools have set up so that you can try to get yourself as ready as possible for your internship. So, um, And and different schools may have different requirements. Um, In your fourth year of med school, there's a lot of, uh, what's the word? There's a lot of variability in what schools require. And I think, for example, a med school that required you to do an emergency medicine rotation, required you to do a radiology rotation, required you to do um, an ICU rotation. Neurology. Well, that's, that's, that's a given. And that's a third year rotation. So don't even get me started. But anyway. Not always no, required. But, well, it should be. But that's a different debate. And it shouldn't even be a debate because that's just a clear fact that you need neurology. Anyway, um, you're getting me really riled up now. Uh, and I keep losing my train of thought. <laughs> What I was going to say, yes, is that you need, in my opinion, my humble opinion, you need emergency medicine, you need ICU exposure, you need all of that required before you graduate med school, because I think... It will better prepare you for when you are an intern and you are in the ICU. And so for me, for example, in our medical school, we did not have an, a required ICU rotation. So my first experience being in an ICU every single day and working long hours was when I was an intern and that's okay. And I, I figured it out, but I just think that the more um, exposure that you can give a medical student to critical care and acute care, especially when most medical student, medical students are going to be in um an inpatient setting for their residency and working in acute care situations. So it's it's things like that just to prepare someone as best they can. And I, it's very interesting. I mean, there's a huge variability in fourth year across the country with the different medical schools and what they require. And in my opinion, I think it should be more streamlined. It should really be more standardized. Um, yes, give people time to do electives. Um, but it, it's just always been funny to me because if you think about it, and this is, again, getting off on a tangent, but fourth year is the time when we have all this elective time. And that's when you already need to have decided where you're going and what you're doing. So if if elective time is to really explore, then it's kind of in the wrong time, right? <laughs> I mean, that really yeah. should be <laughs> earlier. And there's no, really, there's no way to put it earlier because you have to do all this required stuff and then you need a time so you can apply to residency. So I get it, but... Anyway, I just, I think that med students sort of have a lot of the same teaching and learning for the first three years. And then in fourth year, there's this sort of, ooh, you know, it's, everything is, I mean, it just completely depends. And maybe if people had more uh, experience and more exposure to things, they would feel more prepared. I know I would have been at least.
0: Yeah. All right.
1: So all right. I, I don't know. I, I don't know what your experience is, Ryan, mm-hmm. and maybe I'm just alone here, but.
0: I think, I think you nailed it all. I like it. All right. Let's talk to let's talk about the third one here and that's coding. How to properly code a visit and code procedures and code whatever you're coding because ultimately that's how you as a physician get paid is your coding. And for those that aren't that don't know about coding in ICD-9 and ICD-10 and that's fine it's probably over your head maybe at this point but knowing it now and it's it's something that As you go through the process, you can start learning because we're telling you it's important to know. And for me, this is another one where I'll I'll lean on your expertise, Allison, because for me being in the Air Force for five years, I didn't really have to know coding. I I had to code, but it didn't really affect my paycheck because I was being paid by the Air Force and a salaried basically employee. But you, on the other hand, you needed to code and that's how kind of you got paid and it was tracked and, and everything. So from from your experience, when you first left your residency training and you went into quote unquote private practice, what was that transition like learning how to code and making sure that you're... you're getting every dollar out of the patient and out of the insurance company. <laughs> That's
1: a terrible way to look at it. But it, it's the game you, you know, play, it's, right? it's funny though, Ryan, because I don't look at it that way. Like, when I'm in my, when I was in my office last week, I wasn't looking, you know, when I was typing in, uh, whatever, I was typing in Alzheimer's dementia, I wasn't typing it in as a code so that I could think about, well, how many dollars am I going to get for that? I, that never even enters my thought process. The reason that I need to code properly is because the patients, for, like, they're problemless and they're set of diagnoses need to be accurate. They need to, the tests that you order need to reflect the diagnoses that you're putting down. So, and then the patient will be billed. But it's funny because I don't I don't think about coding every day when I code is, oh, okay, well, now I've I put five codes in, so I'm going to get X dollars. It, I, it just doesn't work that way, um, at least in my mind. Well, um,
0: but that's because you're not the practice owner.
1: That is true. And so I'll tell you, though, from my experience, when I left residency, so in my residency training in our clinic. And, and by the way, the only time you really get exposure to coding is not inpatient. It's outpatient. And for most residencies, it probably depends on the specialty, but for most residencies, uh, you will have a certain amount of clinic time. And so you'll have something for most people called a continuity clinic where you'll see patients throughout the year and you have clinic time and then you might have your OR time where you're – Uh, inpatient time. And so in the clinic, you would be coding, but you would circle like a couple different things. So let's say you were seeing a patient and they were coming in with neuropathy. So you might circle your neuropathy code and then you might circle B12 deficiency or something else. But then it was always this sort of like you know, I don't know, very superficial thing because your attending would be there and they would sort of circle the right codes and look at what you did. But it was very, very superficial. And no, nobody was really showing you how to do it. They were just sort of saying, well, I'll circle these things that you think are right. And there you go. And so when I went out into private practice, um, the, the person who hired me really showed me what I needed to do. And I remember him saying that you were, you know, wanting to circle a certain number of codes and because, you know, to meet the, the, um, I'm I'm not going to remember the word now. Complexity, thank you, exactly. Of the uh, visit, you need to meet a certain number of codes. And anyway, there is, as you say, there is this sort of game about coding. And it's, it's kind of... You know, it's nobody loves doing it because it's kind of a mess. But um, and and ICD-10, by the way, created like sixty thousand more codes, five thousand, yeah, than ICD-9 has. So um, there was the running joke when um, the new codes came out that people were putting all these signs on the wall, like, you know, uh, I don't know, eaten by a killer whale, and that was the, <laughs> literally, and that was a new diagnostic code. So the coding system, thanks, World. Yeah. <laughs> oh, geez, the the coding system is a disaster. Um, but it but it's doable. But it's just, I think, from from my my experience, it was a little bit, I had my hand held a little bit when I went into practice because I was working at a small practice. I had my mentor hire me. He showed me sort of what I needed to do um, in terms of coding. But I think you also learn a lot more. So interestingly, when I went to my next job, I actually had my first session with a coder and somebody who's actually trained in teaching physicians how to code properly. And I said to her, I said, why don't you guys go to medical schools and train people to do this? Because we, and residents, because we have no idea what we're doing when we come out. And she said that, Certain medical schools, like at UMass, where I was working um, in my second job, they actually do uh, spend some time um, with the residents in certain specialties, uh, going over how to code properly. And I learned so much in that session, and it just kind of blew my mind because she taught me things that I had not been doing for the past year and a half, and it was a little bit alarming. Uh, but the reality is that you need to be able to code properly for Medicare, for reimbursement, for all of these things. And you don't if if you go out there and you have no idea what you're doing, you're you're going to get yourself into trouble. Um, so you definitely need to learn. It's an important thing. Yeah,
0: it's very, very important. And and like I said, it's it's important. Uh, you just said for reimbursement purposes, yes, for tracking the patient and and for databases for different diseases and things, it's very important. But at the end of the day, coding is very important for getting paid. And if it's not you that's getting paid, it's the hospital that's getting paid. And they're going to wonder where all the money's going to. Right. So.
1: And we didn't even talk about. Uh, coding for procedures, which is a whole nother thing. So yeah.
0: Awesome. All right. The next one here is one that, that you brought up. I want to hear your thoughts on this one. Because I have a vivid memory of you, of I think one of your first times doing this.
1: Oh, geez. No. Because, oh, gosh. I know exactly what you're talking about. But uh, anyway. Um, so what we were thinking of, talking about next is pronouncing a person and what i mean by that is actually pronouncing someone dead and there is something so unique about being a physician because being a physician is the only a physician is the only person who would do that i mean unless you're like in a zombie depending ap- on
0: the state some states are different is but, that
1: true okay yeah. i didn't know that i was gonna say unless you're in like a zombie apocalypse and people are just dying um but uh so i just I will never ever as long as I live, I will never forget my first experience actually pronouncing a patient dead. <clears throat> it was during my internship, and it was a very, very very sick woman um she was she'd been in the i c u and she was transferred to the floor, and I was taking care of her and I just remember being just Oh my goodness! Just really overwhelmed. It was literally during my first week as an intern, and uh, I remember her family, and I remember, I remember it, and I remember other situations where I pronounced someone dead, um, but it, there's just. Um, again, there's nothing that can sort of prepare you for that. So I don't, I I don't think that, well, again, this topic about what do we think med school should sort of prepare us better for or teach. Um, nobody taught me in med school about this or what this was going to be like and what you're supposed to do. And you learn in your residency training and, uh, a, a senior, a junior resident taught me what to do. Um, but there's, there's something, um, it's you can't even articulate it really. There's something just so poignant about being the person to sort of send that person off. I I'm I'm sort of at a loss for words even to talk about it. But if you think about birth being, you know, when a baby comes into the world, I mean it is just a monumental thing. And to be the person who basically states that this is the last moment of this person's life and um to be there often with their family at the bedside is it's just it's an overwhelming thing. And I think over the course of my residency, I had to do that quite a number of times and it, it never becomes, and I don't think it ever should become, um, routine. You know, it's, it's, it's the last moment of another human being's life, um, so I guess I, I don't know that medical school should do anything differently. I mean, it's I don't know that it would even be appropriate to bring a medical student into the room with a family. I mean, unless they were taking care of the patient, they simulate. You know, well, well, true, true. They, I guess. they didn't
0: do that at least at where we went. To they school. did not
1: simulate it. Um,
0: so what what we learn is just what we see on TV, and I think that's what I was I was getting at earlier. I think you you told me about a time where you pronounced somebody and I think you were the only one in the room and and you verbalized like time of death, blah, blah, blah.
1: I did because that's (laughs) how I learned and I came home and told you about it and you laughed at me and I thought, why is that funny? And he said, because you don't have to do it like they do it on ER. (laughs) (laughs) like the TV show Grey's Anatomy I guess for this next generation Um, yes but I don't know but my devil's advocate to Ryan was that if you're in a room with a family um, I mean (laughs) you sort of how are they supposed to know? I mean, do you turn to them and say, well, they're dead? I mean, no, that's crude. And so I think there's actually something very, I mean, that's how the layperson sort of knows, like if they watch TV, you know, time of death. I mean, that's, that's what they know. And that's what they see. And I think that um, makes it easier for family.
0: You could say, I'm sorry.
1: You could say, I'm sorry, but you, they might think that I'm sorry about, you know, the person being near death or them being in this terrible situation. I, I don't know. What would you say, Ryan?
0: I'm sorry they're gone. I'm sorry they've passed. I'm sorry. I don't know. I time, I... time of death is just very formal and very, very Grey's Anatomy.
1: Well, anyhow, it's not where I learned it for yeah. all of you <laughs> I,
0: I think I've only pronounced one person dead. Really? Wow. And, and the, the hardest part for me was all of the paperwork that came afterwards.
1: Yes. And that's something I, so I saw that part of it actually, um, during my, uh, medical student, um, away elective. I was, um, I was at Brigham doing an, my away elective and I remember um, a patient dying and the intern who actually, he was a junior resident who I was working with. He got all the paperwork and showed me what to do. So I had seen that before, but I think to actually be the person to pronounce someone you're never going to be able to do that as a medical student anyway it wouldn't be appropriate because again state law wouldn't allow that um, from everything I know at least Ryan um, but I think uh, if let's say maybe the medical student you know you're a med student and you've been taking care of a patient for a week and they're really they're very ill and, and let's say they pass away maybe if it's okay with the family allowing Yeah, the med student to go in the room with the intern or the resident or the attending when they're pronounced dead. I mean, it's it's maybe just something that's sort of good to to see before you actually have to do it. I mean, you literally have to be taught what to do, like put the stethoscope on their chest, listen for a heartbeat, put the stethoscope at their neck, listen for a pulse, you know, feel for a pulse. and it's important stuff. I, I had a patient who we had thought died. And then all of a sudden he coughed and, and, you know, and all the family was completely startled because we thought that he had died. I'll never forget that one either. Um, I'll Maybe never... he
0: was just turning like in Walking Dead.
1: Oh, my gosh. Anyway, um, <laughs> no, I think he was... He was dying, but he had not quite died and his family and, and we were all startled. I remember because I was listening to him at the time and he all of a sudden he coughed and everybody in the room just jumped. But um, you really, wow. you have to learn how to do this. It's yeah. a, it's a big deal. It really, really is. Yeah.
0: It's a, it's one of those responsibilities. It's, it's, what's that quote like with great power comes great responsibility Absolutely. or something. It's a huge part of, of obviously at this point, not the patient's, life but the family members that are involved uh, absolutely it's a huge part. and
1: i think for their life too i i don't i don't often pronounce people anymore it's just not part of my day-to-day life i'm in clinic most of the time seeing patients and if i'm in you know on call or we're, we're consultants so we're not we're not the, the person you know taking care of the patient you know every single day all day we're there to step in if people need help from a neurologic perspective. So, um, but it's something I'll never, ever forget. It's, I think like you said, it's, it's a, it's an incredible responsibility to, to send someone out of this world and to, to, you know, tell their family that they've died. And um, I mean, you, you sign their death certificate. It's, it's a really, it's, there are no words really uh, until you've experienced it.
0: Yeah. All right. So that was a a big one, a profound one. This next one, kind of goes back into similar area as coding and money and that's value-based care and understanding that everything you do has a dollar amount plastered onto it Um, for for heart disease or for for high blood pressure there's a million and one different medications and they all cost something different and typically what we know as physicians it's What's what company has the biggest marketing budget that puts their name in front of our eyes the most? And that's what we know to prescribe. Or what medication, what company has the biggest marketing budget and has the most commercials that a patient comes and asks you because that's the commercial that they see more. Yeah, but did, did often. you
1: actually prescribe those medications first because of that? I, you know.
0: <laughs> you know the ones that you know because those are the names that you know.
1: Yeah, but I don't think, I mean- I'll just argue here that I think there's been a huge push to have residents really protected from uh, pharmaceutical companies. And so many of you who've shadowed, you may have gone into offices and you've seen big signs that say no pharmaceutical reps. And in my residency training, wow, I mean, they were not allowed anywhere near us. And so I think... I probably saw more commercials than anything else about some of the drugs. But it was interesting because in private practice, we before the Sunshine Act, which changed a lot of things, we did have people come into the office to talk about um, different drugs during our lunch. And the Sunshine Act um, made it so that uh, Medicare really tracks very, very, very closely exactly how many dollars a physician is taking from a pharmaceutical company. So, for example, if you have a lunch and you have – food for three physicians the each physician has to sign their name and it and and they write down exactly how many dollars were spent on them for that lunch so that changed everything and we didn't have reps come into the the office after that um and where i am now i don't really see any uh but it's it's a very it's an interesting thing because i i guess when you say that when i think about like for a neuropathy patient if i'm gonna prescribe medication what i what i start with is not lyrica which is the most expensive and the, the biggest you know I mean, you see it all over the, you know, on commercials. Lyrica is the number one drug for That's blah, blah, blah. just blah. for
0: fibromyalgia?
1: No. <laughs> we no. use it for diabetic neuropathy <laughs> and other things too. But the point is that uh, I don't start there because it's extremely expensive. and there are other therapies that are proven to be maybe just as good or better, and they cost a lot less. They've been around a lot longer. So I think to be honest, Ryan, where you learn how to prescribe drugs is is really where you're trained in the school of thought and And you know, so the my my mentors when in my neurology residency, they trained me in, okay, well, this is the medication that they know that we start with for this. and and so you're sort of bred into whatever philosophy or whatever system. i What I would say is more that, the, the the cost gets completely out of whack with testing. So all the tests that can be done. And I mean, we had crazy zebra patients who would come in. Zebra meaning like something you know super rare and nobody knew what was going on with them. And uh, it's amazing how many tests can be ordered for a situation like that when you don't know what's going on. And when you become an attending and then you are in the office, you have to really think carefully about Uh, what is that patient going to be charged? What are they going to see on their bill? Because you're sort of in this bubble when you're a resident and you're not given a lot of training and tools about understanding how much money patients are going to be charged. You don't know what that bill amount is going to be when that patient leaves the hospital. You don't probably ever see them again. But when you're in the clinic and you're seeing somebody and you're saying, okay, hey, I think you need this MRI and I think you need these three labs done, and that patient says, well, I need to pay my rent this month and I can't pay for that, that's a really big deal. It's a really big deal. Yeah. And that's not something I remember in my residency very vividly we had uh, this EHR, this electronic record, that, that would show you the dollar amount, but like it would be like one dollar sign. It's like at yeah. restaurants in like the Zagat or Zagat review, how it shows you like one dollar sign or two dollar signs or three dollar signs. So it would show you like, okay, a potassium is like one dollar sign. But that's such a like <laughs> it's not it's like a very esoteric thing, like you really don't know what that means. And so when you then go out and practice it's it's very you really you have to, I think. I think you really you have to it's part of being responsible you can't just order whatever you want it's not it's not appropriate it's not reasonable it's not fair
0: yeah and again when if you're the practice owner if you're part of a a practice where they give bonuses based on on money saved then it's an important thing to know and and do but i think even if you're not part of that type of system it's still important for our healthcare system overall.
1: Yeah, and you're right. I mean, Medicare absolutely does uh, reward physicians for actually saving money.
0: Yes, that is true. All right, let's cover uh, one more, a little bit more in depth, and we have a couple at the end we'll throw in there for fun. So what's the next one?
1: Sleep deprivation. How to manage sleep deprivation. So I remember in med school being tired sometimes, <laughs> really tired, mostly from just studying constantly and being like exhausted from that. But I guess I, I didn't have a, a super rigorous surgery rotation. My OB rotation, I remember, was pretty rigorous. Um, and I, I did have to stay overnight, but I had pretty nice residents. They would they would sometimes just let me sleep. <laughs> I, I think you had a much more rigorous surgery rotation yeah. than I did, um, but I, I think just that the sleep deprivation that you have as a med student is just night and day from when you're actually in residency, and that's something that you are not taught how to handle at all.
0: Yeah. What What would you have liked to have learned?
1: I think just <laughs> well, they tell you okay, you're going to be working eighty hours a you know a week, or well, or one hundred and twenty hours a week, um, and Great. Okay. Well, when you are working 120 hours a week, like I was at sometimes during my residency, and you actually start calculating how many hours there are physically in a week, there's something (laughs) that's a little wrong. Uh, You start to really realize just how few hours you're sleeping. Um, I think, again, it's just there, there should, in my opinion, there should be some time in medical school dedicated to how to take care of yourself. And as you go into residency, as you step into being an intern and a resident, how are you best going to take care of yourself? Because to be honest, I think that a lot of the trouble that we as physicians get into in terms of becoming depressed and even suicidal has to do with, um, the pressures on us and the lack of, of coping skills and training about how to best take care of ourselves, uh, physically. And it, that, that means, uh, sleeping. That means eating well, exercising, all these things. There's not really, you really are sort of, you know, put into the the pool and in the deep end and they say, okay, good luck. You know, you have to figure it out on your own. And, um, that's part of, I think, the part of growing a thicker skin, which is really an important thing. And I, I grew a much thicker skin in med school and then a super much thicker skin in residency. But I think we also are in some ways doing ourselves a disservice as physicians because if we're not preparing medical students to go out there and and, and be sleep deprived and work hundred, I mean, yes, 80, but sometimes more than that, hours a week. we're we're running the risk of of our peers and colleagues becoming uh, really sick and then depressed and even suicidal.
0: Oh, I think it's huge. I think it's a very, very huge.
1: Yeah, well, and like when you're when you have a baby, I mean, you're sleep deprived, and that's like a totally different thing. Yeah. I mean, I remember my mom, like I was saying, to her, oh, I've been, you know, I was a resident, I, I'll be fine, and she was like, okay, Alison, you yeah. know, she was really kind and very nice about it, but she was sort of laughing internally. And sure enough, when we had our daughter, I was like, uh, I mean, it's it's a totally different thing when you have a baby and all of you out there who are you know moms and dads i mean you know this you you it's just a completely different animal because you don't get to go home and sleep after you've been on call there is no going home and sleeping <laughs> you're always on but but that said i mean i remember that before that when i was a resident and i was just i mean it's to be that sleep deprived and to have to function well and take care of people and have these really hard conversations with people and you know be taking care of people who are death's door i mean you you have to be able to take care of yourself and and i think at the time we probably just relied on each other to get through it you know um and great but i think there are probably better ways to at least to kind of prepare people and to give people tools and and ways of of learning how to manage that friends of ours ask that you know they say how 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 the hell are you guys able to do that you know, and I don't know. I mean, adrenaline is a powerful thing, I think. And that's what I've said. It's, it, you know, you, you don't think about it. You just go. There's nothing else to do. You have to be there. You have to do it. But um, I think that, you know, that doesn't always work for everybody. Yeah,
0: I agree. All right. So that was, I don't know, five or six different things we wish we would have learned in medical school. And then there were a couple more that we kind of threw on, on the, at the end. And we'll talk about those real quick. Healthcare policy, quality improvement, and patient safety things. Now, those those are more things from the administrative side, I think, but as physicians, we still have a huge part and a, a huge role in those. Do you have any thoughts on those?
1: Well, what do you mean by healthcare policy?
0: So healthcare policy, just understanding, just the understanding of how things work in our government, how Medicare laws get passed, why... Why are we still fighting for residency spots? What, who's making those decisions? That that type of thing.
1: So, kind of understanding your place in the whole system. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. <laughs> and quality improvement is huge. I mean, uh, there's so much focus on that in every hospital that you'll work in, and people. I mean, which is great. People are always trying to make things better and also safer, which is the next one, which is patient safety. And I I think patient safety probably would affect you the most as a resident when you're, you know, in med school and then as a resident because you'll see things happen. I mean, hopefully not terrible things like wrong side surgeries, but, you know, near misses, things where maybe a patient was almost given the wrong medication or something like that. And so um, you have to become sort of an identifier of those things. But um, but quality improvement too, learning how to to always be trying to make things better.
0: Increase efficiencies and
1: and again, the, if even if you were exposed to these a little bit as a medical student, that would be a good thing.
0: Yeah, awesome. Any last thoughts, Allison?
1: Well, I guess at the end of the day, some of these things you can prepare yourself for or get help from in medical school, and and others you probably just have to experience for the first time, and that's part of the the wonder of of this uh, this calling, this this job, this profession we have is is that it, you will be exposed to things that you in other professions would never. Um, and that's cool and that's awesome. Um, but with that, it comes a lot of responsibility and, and I think knowledge is power. It's always good to be as informed as you can. We always say that on the show, it's always good to be as informed as you can. And that's why Ryan does what he does. And I come in here every, I don't know, whenever he lets me, um, (laughs) and, uh, try to impart whatever help we can for you all out there. Um, but yeah, be informed as early and as often as you can be
0: awesome all right well i hope you got a ton of great information out of the discussion today with the amazing co-host allison gray dr allison gray
1: oh gee thanks Ryan.
0: thank you thank you for coming back oh see the you show. do
1: it too i caught that
0: i know but med stool there's just something about <laughs> stool and medicine great
1: now there's gonna be a hashtag out med there. stool med stool
0: <laughs> yes i like it
1: it's okay it's okay to talk about poop <laughs> it's
0: is, it is okay if you don't talk about it now when are you gonna talk about it all right, I, I truly hope that you enjoyed this conversation, a little variety, not an interview with an amazing pre-med or medical student and not some tips or tricks, but some good information that I hope helped. If you did like today's show, I would love for you to go to iTunes and leave us a rating interview. You can do that at medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. We have a couple new reviews that I want to read. We have one from Cephaloscorin oh was, that's really cute yeah, i like that cephaloscorin. as opposed
1: to cephalosporin an like antibiotic
0: scoring i don't know what he's scoring
1: maybe scoring antibiotics
0: maybe <laughs> he's an antibiotic junkie <laughs> <laughs> okay
1: he will never be sick
0: <laughs> oh, wait. until oh, wait. he gets resistant no, th- <laughs> <laughs> i read it wrong he he said this podcast is cephaloscorin oh it's not his username I read oh, it wrong. Oh, but that's,
1: that's kind of cool. His
0: username is Dan Ban.
1: Oh. <laughs> well, thank you, Dan With Ban. With a bunch that's of numbers. That's awesome. Yeah.
0: That's, you know, goat? I, I, I talked about goat last time. You weren't on the show, obviously.
1: I don't know what goat is, other than it's an animal that says my ass. Yeah. No,
0: you, did, you, you saw this review, though. I showed it to you. I said, what the heck is goat? And I had a couple people email me that they said it means the greatest of all time. Oh. Yeah, I thought it was something bad and they're like, no, no. I just thought it was an animal. You old man. (laughs) It means greatest of all time.
1: That's phenomenal. Well, thank you. Wow.
0: Anyway, Dan Ban says this podcast is Cephaloscorin. He says, I discovered this podcast after getting accepted into a post-baccalaureate pre-med program after completing my bachelor degree in nursing. That's awesome. I've binged on a few episodes each day and I sometimes find Dr. Ryan's gray Voice subconsciously narrating my everyday yeah, life. That was my favorite part. <laughs> I
1: think that's awesome.
0: All right. What can we say to Dan Ban to subconsciously narrate tomorrow for him? I don't uh, know. I don't know. Keep don't
1: doing know. what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: was a little, never mind. Anyway, thank you, Dan Ban, for that. Again, uh, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes. You can leave a rating interview. We have one more here from future Dr. Stone. Said, if I could give more s- stars, I'd give more stars if I could. A music major, undergrad, first-generation college student, finally going after my real dream to become a physician. So Phenomenal. Good luck, future Dr. Stone.
1: I knew a Dr. Stone. He was one of my first mentors, so go yeah. get him.
0: Yeah, that's awesome. All right, again, medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes to leave a rating and interview. If you're in the middle of applications in the middle of interview season and you need some help with your interviews, go to medicalschoolhq.net slash mock interview and you can hire me to help you with your interview prep. I take students through the interview process. So we do a closed interview, open interview, MMI style interview, whatever you need for the school that you're applying to. I recommend you start early and you start often. Don't wait until you have that interview in your hands because then you're scrambling at the last minute to prepare. And that's not something you want to do. The interview process is fun. It can be fun, but it can be brutal as well. But the most important thing to remember is that the interview and interviewing is a skill that you can learn. And, and I've taken students through four interviews and from their first one to their fourth one, dramatic dramatic differences so again medicalschoolhq.net slash mock interview you can also go to medschoolinterviewbook.com and sign up to be notified if it's not already out an interview book that we have uh, on the way for you to help you prepare for your interviews all right again I hope you enjoyed the awesome discussion I had with Allison today And as always, I hope you join us next week here at the Medical School Headquarters and the Pre-Med Years Podcast.